بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So inshallah ta'ala we're going to resume where we left off last week inshallah And that is to begin the reading of the text itself inshallah as much as Allah Azza wa Jal makes it easy for us to uh, to get through so the author begins with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim saying all praises to Allah who sent his messenger with guidance and the religion of truth to make it superior over all other religions and enough is Allah as a witness. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is of course a sunnah from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in beginning writings, especially writings of importance. There are some weak hadith in this regard. There are some hadith that, uh, that are themselves weak, like the hadith that every important matter that does not begin with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is such and such. However, there's no doubt that Bismil beginning writings with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim and beginning speeches with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is a sunnah from the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Because the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in his uh, letters that he had written for him and he sent to the various governors and rulers of the time, those letters contained or began with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And before that, the book of Allah Azza wa Jal, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins every surah except surah al-Tawbah with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And the ba in Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is ba'ul isti'ana. It is a ba which means to seek the help of Allah Azza wa Jal. So it is as if the author is saying Bismillahi Aktub In the name of Allah I write Because there is a verb which is understood From the context And that is that or you can make it general any, according to the circumstances. So if somebody is reciting the Qur'an, we would say that the meaning of Bismillah is Bismillah, I recite. And if somebody is entering the masjid, then the meaning is Bismillah, I enter. And if somebody is eating, the meaning is Bismillah, I eat. And there are a few reasons why the verb is not mentioned. Some people say, well, why don't we just say it? Why don't we say Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Atlu al Quran? Why don't we give the verb? Why don't we mention? There's two reasons. 
number one, to give precedence to the name of Allah Azza wa Jal over and to give precedence to the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over everything else. And the second reason is to keep the word Bismillah general so that there's, it can be used for every circumstance. Otherwise, you would have to memorize a separate dua and a separate dhikr for each individual situation. And so when the verb is taken out of the sentence, it's possible to use Bismillah for every situation that you wish and for every circumstance. So we say again that Bismillah, the ba, it means I seek your help, O Allah. I seek your help by mentioning the name of Allah. Any tabarruk, any seeking barakah by mentioning the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And seeking the help of Allah by making tawassul, by seeking a means of nearness to Allah through mentioning His names. And as we have learned before, Ismullah here is general for all of the names of Allah <coughs> And it's not specific to one particular name. So Bismillah is to seek help from Allah in doing the action that you're doing by mentioning all of His beautiful names and lofty attributes and the rest of bismillahir rahmanir rahim we covered quite a bit of it in the previous classes so we won't go into it too much the author begins with alhamdulillah and again there are numerous ahadith some of them are stronger than others regarding the virtue of beginning a khutbah or a letter or a writing with alhamdulillah And we've covered the meaning of Alhamdulillah in quite some detail. So again, we're not going to go too much into that. But all praises to Allah, the one who sent his messenger with guidance. And the religion of truth. Allah Azza wa Jal sent this religion with knowledge and action. with knowledge and action. And that is the meaning of Al-Huda wa Deen Al-Haqq. Knowledge and action. Al-Huda is guidance which is the knowledge which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to us through the book of Allah and the sunnah of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Deen al-Haqq is to act upon that knowledge, the religion of truth, and to act upon that knowledge. And as we've said, the most fundamental measure of your success in learning Islam is simply down to the degree to which you act upon what you know. 
As for just knowing things, many, many, many people have quote-unquote knowledge. And we often make a big mistake in this regard because we often judge people according to the amount of knowledge we have. So you say, so-and-so has a doctorate. So-and-so has a PhD. So-and-so has memorized 500,000 hadith. So-and-so has ijazat, permissions to teach this book and that book. Really, in the sight of Allah Azza wa Jal, that is not as significant as the amount with, of which or with the amount of that which they act upon. That's what's significant in the sight of Allah Azza wa Jal. And that's why on the Day of Judgment, Allah Azza wa Jal will ask you, as we find in the authentic hadith, an ilmihi will ask you about your knowledge. And Allah will ask each person about their knowledge. But what will He ask? How much of that knowledge did he act upon? So the issue here is not about gathering huge amounts and volumes of knowledge or saying I've studied 500 books or I have 200 ijazat or I have done this and this and this. Even non-Muslims academically can achieve knowledge in a purely academic theoretical sense. You have non-Muslims who have written books on the Arabic language, any huge volumes, dictionaries, tafsir of the Quran. But did it benefit them anything? It didn't benefit them anything. Because it didn't bring them to Islam. It was just ma'lumat, information that they gathered and then transmitted but it didn't benefit them anything. Allah Azza wa Jal sent His Messenger with Al-Ilm with Al-Ilm Wal-Amal with knowledge and action. To make this religion superior over every other religion And that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He has decreed and, and really that is what happened. Islam has superiority over every other way of life. And Islam seeks to be superior over every other way of life. And that's something we should be clear about. A lot of people also find this a difficult or, or maybe find this a, a sensitive topic to deal with. And sometimes we try to sugarcoat it a bit and say, yes, Islam can live with everybody and, you know, just nicely together. No, Islam was sent to be superior over every other system and every other way of life, as Allah told us in the Quran. Because it is the religion of truth. And the truth has a right to be given precedence and given superiority over the falsehood. وَيُحِقُّ اللَّهُ الْحَقِّ بِكَلِمَاتِهِ 
Allah Azza wa Jal will bring out the truth or will establish the truth with His words. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the religion of Islam to be superior over every other religion. Because the religion of Islam, as we're going to come to in a moment, is the religion of Tawheed. The religion of La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And there is no other religion and no other way of life that calls to the worship of Allah Azza wa Jal alone except Islam in a complete sense. And you should be aware of that because again, many sort of, you know, you'll get times sometimes people will say Islam is one of the monotheistic religions in the world. Now, Islam is the only monotheistic religion in the world. Only purely monotheistic religion. There are religions that are monotheistic to a greater or lesser extent for sure and in Christianity and, and maybe even more so Judaism are monotheistic to a degree and they're more monotheistic than Hinduism but in reality they all contain a shirk billahi subhanahu wa ta'ala they all contain making a partner with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they all contain giving one or more of the rights of Allah Azza wa Jal to someone or something else. When Allah Azza wa Jal revealed in Surah At-Tawbah that the Jews and the Christians took their monks and rabbis as lords besides Allah some of the companions found this difficult to understand because they had understood that generally Judaism and Christianity were and in, in a general sense monotheistic religions so when Allah said that they took their monks and rabbis as lords besides Allah this was surprising to some of the Sahaba who had accepted Islam from Ahlul Kitab. And they raised this issue with the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ told them an example of the shirk that exists among Ahlul Kitab. An example of the polytheism or an example of making a partner with Allah that exists among the people of the book. Namely that they allowed their monks and rabbis to make haram what Allah made halal and to make halal what Allah made haram. And they followed them in that knowingly. And they allowed their monks and rabbis to make halal what Allah made haram and they followed in that. And we've already covered the topic of al-istihlal making something halal in the religion not doing something which is haram we all fall into that from time to time that we might do something which is haram but declaring something to be haram which is halal knowingly and declaring something to be halal which is haram knowingly and the prophet ﷺ said this was your worship of them so islam is the only monotheistic religion the only religion that is absolutely dedicated to the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone with no partner and this will come in a moment and sufficient is Allah Azza wa Jal as a witness 
And even if the whole of creation were to deny the message of Islam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would be sufficient as a witness. And that is an interesting sort of small point on this one. Which is that when this ummah will be asked on the day of judgment, To be a witness over the other nations. When we will be asked Yawm Al-Qiyamah to be a witness over the other nations. When the other nations will say that their prophet did not give them the message. Our nation will be called upon to give a witness in favor of that prophet or that messenger. With what will we give a witness? How can we give a witness that Isa السلام, did not tell the people that he was the son of God? How can we give a witness that Musa السلام, fulfilled the message that Allah gave him? We will give a witness through the Quran. I.e. the nation, the Muslim ummah, the Muslim nation will give a witness, will testify that these prophets delivered their message based upon what we have been given in the Qur'an and based upon the text of the Qur'an which came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَكَفَى بِاللَّهِ شَهِيدًا and Allah azza wa jal is sufficient as a witness and the author he says وَأَشْهَدُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَحْتَهُ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ إِقْرَارًا بِهِ وَتَوْحِيدًا he says I bear witness that there is no God that deserves to be worshipped except Allah. This phrase comes a lot. Have you ever thought how many times you are making adhkar after salah, after fajr, after asr, before you go to sleep, uh, you know, like uh, various times during the tashahud in the prayer, and you say in various times, regularly and again and again la ilaha illallah and many times you say la ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika la the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said indeed your iman wears out as a thawb is worn out your iman gets worn out like your thawb gets worn out. When you wear clothing, you wear like a thawb or we call here a kandura or some kind of clothing and you've worn it for a long time, what happens? It becomes worn out. It maybe gets dirty around the edges, it gets holes in it, it, gets, it becomes uh, like frayed, the, the stitching comes off, it becomes frayed. Your iman is like that. The Prophet ﷺ compared your iman to this. That your iman gets worn out like your clothing gets worn out or like a thobe gets worn out. So ask Allah to renew your iman. Ask Allah in the end of the hadith. Ask Allah and you jaddida to renew your iman for you. And that is one of the reasons why we frequently and constantly say La ilaha illallah. 
And that is the danger also for the people who are not regular in their prayers. Because when you're not regular in your prayers, you don't get these opportunities to constantly renew your iman. Because your iman wears out. It's like putting fuel in your car. You know, like you drive it around enough and khalas, your fuel starts to go down and down and down and wear out. You have to top up the fuel. You have to refill the tank. Likewise, your iman. Going around here, you know, living your life, going from place to place, it wears out your iman. So you have to ask Allah Azza wa Jal to refresh your iman and renew your iman. And one of the ways of doing that is frequently making the testimony of faith. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. Wahdahu la sharika la. Wahdahu la sharika la. Is an emphasis or a, uh, if you're almost repeating la ilaha illallah. Because la ilaha illallah is made up of two parts. La ilaha illallah. La ilaha, there is no God. I.e. there is nothing that deserves to be worshipped. Because a God is something which is worshipped. A God is not necessarily something which creates or something which provides or sustains, but a God is something which is worshipped. And that's why when you often speak to people who come from a polytheistic background, like Hinduism for example, and you ask them, why do you believe in these gods that you worship? They will openly say, I do not believe they all create, I do not believe this small plastic statue created anything. I do not believe this, this wooden or this brass picture of an you know, image of a monkey created the heavens and the earth. But as long as they worship that object, then they have taken it as a god. Because a god is anything which is worshipped. So the first part that there is no god. And this is rejecting every kind of worship to anything other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Illallah affirming that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone is the one that deserves to be worshipped. Okay, so we come to wahdahu la sharika la, alone and with no partner. Wahda is an emphasis of the second part of the shahada, illallah. Any illallah, illallahu wahda. And he accepts Allah alone. So wahdahu emphasizes illallah. La sharika la emphasizes la ilaha. And he la ilaha illallah wahda la sharika la. So wahdahu alone emphasizes illallah. And la sharika la emphasizes the first part of the shahada, la ilaha. And when you put them together, because they don't work unless you put them together, you get la ilaha illallah. If they were not together, what would you have? If, it was not, if you were to say la ilaha without saying illallah, then this would be atheism. Because la ilaha means there is no God. And if you were to say illallah without saying la ilaha, this would be polytheism. Because you would be affirming the worship of Allah, but you would not be removing or cancelling out the worship of everything else. And a person can only be a believer, can only be a Muslim, when they join between these two elements. Negating 
or denying, rejecting everything that is worshipped besides Allah and worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And this is repeated in many ayat of the Quran, just to give an example. The ayah after Ayatul Kursi in Surah Al Baqarah. فَمَنْ يَكْفُرْ بِالطَّاغُوتِ وَيُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ فَقَدْ إِسْتَمْسَكَ بِالْعُرْوَةِ الْوُثْقَى لَمْ فِصَامَ لَهَا Whoever disbelieves in the Taghut, disbelieves in everything that is worshipped besides Allah, وَيُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ and believes in Allah, has grasped the most trustworthy handhold that will never break. The most trustworthy handhold is لا إله إلا الله. Wallahu Samiun Alim and Allah hears everything and knows everything. Iqraran bihi wa tawhida. Al Iqrar here it means knowledge and action. Again, you say iqrar or you say aqarra yukirru to mean to believe and act. To believe in something and to act upon that belief. And iqrar here, and this shows you the precision of the, of, the, of the author, and the fact that the author was very, very precise in choosing his words. Iqrar here is, is something more than what we would say tasdiq. Tasdiq is just to believe something is true. And that's why there is an error you see many times, many, many times in Islamic books when they define Iman as Tasdiq. They say that Iman is Tasdiq. Tasdiq to believe something is true. And this is not Iman. This is not Iman. As Al-Raghib uh, Al-Asfahani Rahimahullah Ta'ala said in his uh, dictionary that Iman is more than Tasdiq. Tasdiq just means to believe, you know, just to believe something is true. Iman is to believe something is true and to act upon that belief. And it doesn't just mean to believe that something is true. And that's why we say that the error that the murji'ah fell into when the murji'ah said that actions don't have a part of iman they don't have an evidence for what they say linguistically or islamically because linguistically iman includes action in the language of the arabs the word iman includes action and religiously islamically iman includes action so linguistically they are wrong and Islamically they are wrong. When they say that Iman is simply just to believe in the truth of something. And so the author's choice of the word Iqrar here is interesting because the word Iqrar, it doesn't just mean to believe the truth of something, but it means to act upon that belief. Because La ilaha illallah has actions that are required from the person who says it and as for just saying it on its own then this does not enter a person into Islam 
necessarily. I mean, a person, for example, take the example of the munafiqeen. The munafiqoon are a people who say la ilaha illallah. And by munafiqoon, I don't mean an-nifaq al-amali. I don't mean those people who lie and those people who cheat. I mean an-nifaq al-i'tiqadi. The people who conceal kufr in their heart and profess belief with their tongue. They say la ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. They pray, they say it in their prayers, they say it after their prayers. But when the case is that they did not act upon it by being truthful to their belief and they lied about it, then it did not enter them into Islam. Likewise, the one who says La ilaha illallah and continues to worship a taghut, continues to worship the false gods, this person also cannot be said to have said La ilaha illallah even if they profess it a hundred times a day with their tongue. So it has actions that are required. What is required from a person is al-iqrar, to believe in it and to act upon it. And al-tawheed, because la ilaha illallah is kalimatul tawheed. And this word tawheed was used by the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. In the hadith of Jabir, Sahih Muslim, regarding the hajj, he said, then the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam called out with tawheed. Saying, labbayk Allahumma labbayk, labbayk la sharika laka labbayk. And in one of the wordings of the hadith of Mu'adh ibn Jabal being sent to Yemen. إِنَّكَ تَأْتِي قَوْمًا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ فَلْيَكُنْ أَوَّلَ مَا تَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَيْهِ أَنْ يُوَحِّدُ اللَّهِ you are going to a people of the book. So let the first thing you call them to be the Tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In one of the wordings. So the word Tawheed was known, even if we say this word was not used by the Prophet and we say this wording of Mu'adh ibn Jabal is a wording from the narrator. But the word was known by the Sahaba and used by the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and those who followed them. And it comes from Tawheed, it comes from Wahada Yuwahidu. The form two of the verb. Wahada Yuwahidu Tawheeda. To make something one or to declare something to be one. We know the Arabic word for one is Wahid. So Tawheed is to declare something one or to make something one. And it has two or three categories as it relates to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Either two or three. And it will not harm you whether you take it as two or whether you take it as three. It makes no difference. If we take it as two, and this is what the, I mean, the earlier scholars of Islam were I mean, well known for, then... Tawheed is Tawheed al-Ma'rifati wal-Ithbat and Tawheed al-Qasdi wal-Amal. The first type of Tawheed is the Tawheed of knowledge and affirmation. 
i.e. the tawheed of knowing Allah, that Allah is the only one who does what he does and the only one who is what he is. That nobody has the names of Allah except him, nobody has the attributes of Allah except him, nobody creates except him, nobody sustains except him, nobody provides except him. This is the tawheed of knowledge and affirmation. And then, Tawheed al-Qasdi wal-Amal. The Tawheed of intention and action. And that is that in your actions, every act of worship you do is only done for Allah. So if we think of it in two types, the first type relates to Allah Himself and what He does. And the second type relates to what you do for Allah. Why do we need to split this up or why do we need to distinguish between this apart from the fact that the early generations did? Why do we need to do this? The reason we need to do this is because a person may come and say, I believe in la ilaha illallah, but I make dua to other than Allah. In other words, a person may come and say, I believe in tawheed but I make dua to other than Allah. So in order to clarify that you cannot believe in la ilaha illallah until you join between two things, the scholars divide or create two categories to, for the purpose of clarification. The first being that you believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no one has his names and his attributes and no one does what he does except him. And, and the second one being the most important because it is the one that most people fall into errors in, that as it relates to your actions, all of your acts of worship are for Allah alone. And this is the meaning of La ilaha illallah. And if we divide it into three categories, then some of the scholars later on they came and said, there is a need for a further clarification. And that is to divide the first category, which is Tawheed al-Ma'rifati wal-Ithbat, the Tawheed of knowledge and affirmation, into two categories. And that is to say that it is Tawheed al-Rububiyyah and Tawheed al-Asma wal-Sifat. The Tawheed of Lordship, that Allah is the only Lord and Creator and Sustainer and Provider. And the Tawheed of Allah's names and attributes that only Allah has the names and attributes that He has. It makes no difference whether you divide it into two or whether you divide it into three. The division into three was done because of groups that came along later on and had errors with regard to the names and attributes of Allah and so it was necessary to clarify the importance of Tawheed as it relates to Allah's names and attributes. But the two beliefs are not any different. The two categorizations are exactly the same. One of them puts two in one and one of them separates three out. Someone may say, okay, so far you've told us about the scholars, you've told us about this, but where is the evidence for this Tawheed in the Quran? The reality is there are many ayat you can choose which contain these three types of Tawheed, but perhaps the clearest and easiest is in Surah Maryam. 
رب السماوات والأرض وما بينهما فاعبده واصطبر لعبادته هل تعلم له سمية Lord of the heavens and the earth and everything that is between them so worship him and be patient in his worship or consistent in his worship do you know anyone who has his names or do you know anyone who is similar to him any semi any it has multiple meanings it can mean someone who has his names and his attributes or someone who is similar to him in his names and his attributes so in this allah azza wa jal categorized or divided la ilaha illallah into three types rabbu samawati wal ardi wa ma bainahuma lord of the heavens and the earth and what is between them and the lord this is ar rububiyah i mean this is the lordship of allah azza wa jal because allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the lord the creator sustainer provider a sayyid the i mean the master the one who has a tasarruf complete ability to control and to decree whatever he wants this is all to do with rabbus samawati wal ardi wa ma bainahuma fa'budhu then based on this worship him and be consistent in his worship this is tawhid the third category or the second category depending on whether we said two or three tawhid al uluhiyah the tawhid of allah's worship hal ta'lamu lahu samiya do you know anyone that is similar to him in his names and attributes and this is tawhid al asma wa sifat and you can pick any other ayah of the quran also you can pick alhamdulillah rabbil alamin alhamdulillah contains the worship of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because praising allah is an act of worship that we do for allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and also the name of allah the name allah according to the stronger opinion comes from al ilah and the one who is worshiped rabbul alamin the lord of the heavens or the lord of everything that exists the lord of the worlds and rabbul alamin this is a proof for the rububiyah of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and of course it contains the name allah and the name ar rabb so you could say equally alhamdulillah rabbil alamin but if you wanted a nice clear categorization of the meaning of tawhid then the ayah of surah maryam is clearer the author continues wa ashhadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluhu sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama tasliman mazida says and i bear witness that muhammad is the slave of allah and his messenger and when he says the slave of allah this is the highest status that a person can reach in uh, this dunya any with relation to uh, in the sight of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the highest status that a person can reach is to be a servant of allah because there are two types of servitude to allah there are two types of being a, a servant to allah as well there is a general type of servitude and a specific type of servitude the general type of servitude everyone is a servant of allah as well everyone is a slave of allah the believer the kafir every one of them 
are slaves of Allah, meaning that they are Allah, they are yani, under the the dominion, yani, the property of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that Allah does with them whatever He wishes and whatever He wills. So the believer and the kafir, all of them are ibadullah. All of them are the servants of Allah in a general sense. Whether willingly or unwillingly, it makes no difference. All of them are servants of Allah. Because all of them are within his dominion, they, yani they are within his possession. And all of them he does with them whatever he wants. And there is al-ubudiyah al-khasa. There is specific servitude or unique servitude, special servitude, which is the servitude of the believers. Because they have gone beyond the disbeliever who is a servant of Allah, well, even if it is unwilling. He's still a servant of Allah. He does what Allah decrees and he can't escape the decree of Allah. He can't escape the mulk, the dominion, the possession of Allah. But the believers are those who choose to dedicate themselves in servitude to Allah in the way that Allah commanded them to do. And the best of them and the highest of them in servitude is the Messenger of Allah And if you want to know the virtue of this of, of this title, Abdullah, you only have to look at, at the Quran. For example, in Surah Al-Isra, Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj was one of the most, one of the greatest honors that Allah Azza wa Jal bestowed upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And he bestowed it upon him after that year of sadness and, and difficulty that he went through when he lost uh, Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha wa ardaha and his uncle Abu Talib and he faced a huge amount of rejection and difficulty one of the greatest honors that Allah Azza wa Jal bestowed upon the Prophet is al-Isra wal-Mi'raj and in the context of that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said Subhanalladhi asra bi'abadihi laylan exalted is the one who took his abd, his slave on a night journey and many of the other prophets Dawood and so on were described with this title Isa ibn Maryam described with this title Abd Abd the servant of Allah because their prophets and the messengers والسلام, they fulfilled true servitude to Allah and they were true slaves of Allah in the most complete sense of the word. And testifying that the Prophet ﷺ is Abdullahi wa Rasulah is a sunnah which the Prophet ﷺ commanded us to do when he told us not to exaggerate with him like the Christians exaggerated with regard to Isa ibn Maryam. He said, so say that I am Abdullahi wa Rasulah. Say that I am the servant, the slave of Allah and his messenger. Because the Christians exaggerated with regard to Isa until they said, Ibnullah, the son of Allah. 
Whereas in order to avoid this and in order to avoid exaggeration with regard to the Prophet ﷺ, we are commanded to say Abdullah wa Rasuluh, the slave of Allah and his messenger. Meaning that the messenger of Allah وسلم, and if you say this and understand it, subhanAllah, it saves people from a huge amount of the shirk that Muslims might fall into with regard to the Prophet وسلم. Like those people who give the Prophet وسلم, the attributes of Allah. They say that he is hadirun wa nadir. He's present in every place and he can see everything. And they give him the title, like the, the attribute of Sami'un Basir. And he hears everything and sees everything. If they only understood this statement, Abduhu wa Rasuluh, would be sufficient to keep them away from this evil. Because when you recognize that the Prophet ﷺ is Abdullah, you realize he is, he is not going to exceed the status of being a slave of Allah. Every single one of us, as Allah tells us, every single one of us will come to Allah as a slave. Every single one of us will come to Allah as a slave. وَرَسُولُهُ You give him the status that he deserves. So Abdullahi وَرَسُولُهُ joins between two things. It stops you from giving the Prophet ﷺ the rights of Allah, but it gives him the position that he deserves. So when you say Abdullah, you're putting an upper limit. That whatever status the Messenger of Allah ﷺ reaches, it will never reach a status beyond him being Abdullah. The servant of Allah. But at the same time, he is the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, which is the highest position and the highest rank. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the Prophet sallallahu himself commanded us to call him Abdullahi wa Rasuluh, the slave of Allah and his messenger. Balancing between not going to the extremes of those people who worshipped him as a god besides Allah nor to those who were negligent with regard to his right. Sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama tasliman mazida. Salah ala nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The meaning of sallallahu alayhi. The meaning of as-salah. There are lots of opinions from the scholars on this topic, but the, to summarize so we can make, get through more text, yani, the, the summary of it is for Allah to mention him and exalt his mention in with those who are with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yani, the angels in Al-Mala'ul A'la, the highest gathering, those angels who are the closest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to and he exalt the mention of the Prophet ﷺ in this noble gathering. And at Taslim Wasallam is to protect the Prophet ﷺ from everything which would take away from his status and his virtue. And that is what is meant when you say Assalamu Alaikum. And the meaning of Assalamu Alaikum is not really peace. 
to be honest. The meaning of assalamu alaikum is similar to the statement that is colloquially said a lot now that people will say, Sallamakumullah. May Allah Azza wa Jal keep you safe and honored and protected from everything which would take away from your position. And that is the meaning of at-taslim. For Allah Azza wa Jal to preserve the honor and the position and the status of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Interesting point here, the Shaykh he says, وَعَلَىٰ آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ Again, uh, I'll not go too much into the difference between Al and Sahb. There's a, a lot of difference of opinion whether the regard is Al, the family or the followers. Some of them said that Al are the believing family of the Prophet and the Sahab, they are the, they are the Sahaba, and his companions. And some said that the Al are all of the followers of the Prophet Sallallahu This is, to the best of my opinion, the, to the best of my knowledge, the stronger opinion, that Al are all of the followers of the Prophet Sallallahu And that Sahab are his companions directly. And it's a very famous line of poetry in which the poet, and he said that if Al referred to the family of the Prophet ﷺ, then a person would be giving salah and salam upon Abu Lahab. And that is one opinion. In any case, Al-Al was Sahib include the family of the Prophet ﷺ and his companions and his followers. But what I wanted to highlight here is the word Allah. And this again shows the, the fiqh of uh, the author in the Arabic language and a lot of people have a, have a habit of saying Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Alihi Wa many scholars you hear them say this Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Alihi without saying Ala when you say this effectively you share the Salah and the Salam between the Prophet Sallallahu and his followers the same Salah and Salam you share it when you say wa ala alihi, you give a separate salah and salam upon the Prophet and a separate salah and salam upon his family and his companions. And this is the more correct. And it's not I mean, it's not a big deal, but it's grammatically and linguistically, it is much better that you say wa ala alihi and not wa alihi wa sahbi. Because when you say wa alihi wa sahbi, you are dividing, you're not giving a new salam. You're saying, give salah and salam to the Prophet or give this salah and salam to the Prophet his family and companions. Whereas when you say wa ala alihi, then you're saying, give salah and salam to the Prophet and give salah and salam to his family and his companions. And this meaning wise is more complete, even though neither, both of them are acceptable but this one is more complete وَسَلَّمَ تَسْلِيمًا مَزِيدًا تَسْلِيمًا مَزِيدًا give an increase in السلام an increase in السلام and we said السلام is protection of honor and dignity and status and it's asking Allah Azza wa Jal to raise the status of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. 
Amma Ba'd. The author, he said, Amma Ba'd. Amma Ba'd is a word that you use to refer to some, to, to the, after giving the introduction, to the main body of the text. And it's also uh, a sunnah. Amma Ba'd. So the author he says, He said, This is the i'tiqad, this treatise, this writing, is the i'tiqad, is the belief of the saved sect. Because Islam will break up and end. Uh, we should start probably by talking about i'tiqad. I think we have talked a little bit about it already. But al-i'tiqad comes from the, the root word aqada. Al-ayn wal-qaf wal-dal. Comes from al-ayn wal-qaf wal-dal. Ayn, qaf, dal. And this root word has many meanings. Means to hold on to something firmly, means to tie something up. Al uqad any knots. It means for something to become hard and firm. And in terms of the word i'tiqad, i'tiqad are those beliefs as we said, any of those fundamental beliefs that we act upon, giving truth to or affirming the truth of what Allah and His Messenger وسلم, came with. So the Shaykh, he says, this is the i'tiqad, this is the aqidah of the saved sect, al-firqa al-najiyah. Now this indicates by maybe what we would call mafhum al-mukhalafah by opposite, understanding the opposite that there must be sects that are not saved. That there are sects which are saved or a sect which is saved and there must be at least one sect which is not saved. Because the statement al-firqa al-najiyah indicates that there must be a firqa which is not najiyah. Yani there must be a group which is not saved. And this we know because the Prophet ﷺ told us that this ummah will break up into 73 groups or 73 sects. It's narrated that Ahlul Kitab, in some narrations it's mentioned Ahlul Kitab will break up into 72 sects. In some it's mentioned that the Jews into 71 and the Christians into 72. And there are various different wordings. But the summary of all of these different wordings is, when you put them all together, that there will be sectarianism and division within this ummah, within the Muslims. All of them are in the hellfire except one. So this tells us that all of these other groups and sects 
will be in Jahannam, will be in the hellfire. Except one of them which will be saved. This has so many important benefits. First of all, it should make you very, very keen to be careful with what you believe and with what you, uh, with what you choose to worship Allah with. Because it is not sufficient to simply be a general part of the Muslims as a, you know, like as a, as a title, you know, like my name is Ahmed, I'm one of the Muslims, that's enough. That's not enough. Because the Prophet ﷺ told us that the Muslims themselves will break up into 70-something groups. In most of the narration, 73. 70-something groups. All of them are in the hellfire except one. And that tells us that there will be a large number of Muslims, people from this ummah, who will go astray in their beliefs and their actions and so be at risk of being from the people of the hellfire. That doesn't mean that every individual, Allah can forgive whatever He wills and overlook whatever He wills, but He has promised that He will not overlook shirk. He will not overlook making a partner with Him if a person dies upon that. But ultimately, a person is at risk. The Prophet has told you there is a danger. And this wording or these wordings are mentioned in many, many, many uh, different ahadith. And uh, if you get chance to have a look at a book, there is a really, really nice book translated into English. And I'm not sure if I'll get the title. Maybe I can look it up at the end. But uh, it's called something like The Proof That Ahlul Hadith Are the Saved Sect and the Victorious Group. And it's by Sheikh Fawzi Al-Athari. It's translated into English. It's a very nice discussion of the concept of the saved sect and the victorious group and the statements of the scholars as to who those people are. So it talks about who is the saved sect and the victorious group and the statements of the scholars from the early generations about who they are. Because we should not think that the scholars did not touch upon this issue, like nobody talked about it. The Prophet ﷺ in many ahadith spoke about this. He said, Whoever of you lives for a long time will see a great deal of differing within the ummah, a great deal of sectarianism within the ummah. Stick to my sunnah and the sunnah of the rightly guided khulafa who will come after me, after the Prophet ﷺ. Bite onto it with your molar teeth. In some narrations, tamassaku biha, hold onto it tightly. عَلَيْهَا بِالنَّوَاجِذِ And bite onto it with your molar teeth. وَإِيَّاكُمْ وَمُحْتَثَاتِ الْأُمُورِ And keep away from the newly invented practices. For every newly invented practice is an innovation. And every innovation is misguidance, as the Prophet ﷺ said. So this should make you wake up to the fact that the fact that you were born with the name Ahmed or Muhammad or Maryam or Fatima doesn't, it's not enough. 
there are going to be within that group of people whose names are Ahmed and Muhammad and Yaqub and you know Yusuf and Fatima and Maryam and Aisha there will be within that group of people sectarianism and division and that if you don't align yourself with the correct belief and the correct group then that sectarianism and that division could lead you to Jahannam and once again we repeat just so that we can be very clear because we're talking about aqidah so we should be clear deviation in belief is of two types or bid'ah yani in general is of two types bid'atun mukaffirah and bid'atun ghayru mukaffirah a bid'ah which takes you outside of islam and a bid'ah which doesn't take you outside of islam The one that takes you outside of Islam, i.e. the one that contains within it shirk billah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like the bid'ah of calling upon the dead, making dua to the dead. This is a bid'ah which is mukaffira, it takes a person outside of Islam. If a person dies with this belief, they will die from the, to be from the people of Jahannam, khalidina fiha, and they will never get out of it. Because they died having made a partner with Allah and Allah said, Allah does not forgive you to make a partner with him, but he forgives anything less than that for whoever he wills. As for bid'ah, a bid'ah which does not take a person outside of Islam. And there are many, many kinds of examples. But the person did not fall into shirk. They did a practice which was not done by the Prophet ﷺ. But they didn't fall into making a partner with Allah. Then this person is deserving of punishment in Jahannam. If Allah wills, He will overlook it and enter them into Jannah without punishing them. And if He wills, He will punish them. And if He punishes them in Jahannam and they have not made a partner with Him, then they will enter Jannah eventually. So we understand there are two types of bid'ah. A bid'ah which takes a person outside of Islam and this person will be in Jahannam forever. And a bid'ah which doesn't take a person outside of Islam. An innovation, a new practice which doesn't take a person outside of Islam. This person is deserving of punishment. And like any sin, if Allah wills, He will forgive it and if Allah wills, He will punish them. But if He punishes them, He will not punish them eternally. Because a person who did not make a partner with Allah, who is a muahid, person of tawheed, even if they fell into bid'ah, they will not be punished eternally. But they are deserving of punishment. So we understand that this issue is serious, ikhwani. It's a serious issue. This is not a light issue. It's not something we can just say, you know, it's okay. You know, like, I became Muslim. Because within Islam, there are dangers. And if we take this hadith, within Islam, there are 72 wrong ways and one right way. Some of the scholars say these 72 wrong ways are all wrong ways that still remain within Islam. They are still considered to be Islam. And outside of that, there are many other wrong ways that are not even considered to be Islam. 
For example, the religion of the Baltiniya, the Baltiniya, many, many groups of the Baltiniya, like the the uh, the Alawites and uh, the Ismailiya, the, the Ismailis and these different groups of the Baltiniya, all of them are from the Baltiniya. Yani. They call the Baltiniya because they believe that every text of Islam has a hidden meaning that only they know. So Salah doesn't mean Salah and Zakah doesn't mean Zakah and Hajj doesn't mean Hajj and so on. They are not considered to be by some of the scholars or by many of the scholars within the 72 sects that are misguided. They are considered to be totally outside of Islam. They are not even in the, in the same area. Yani. They are not even in the ballpark as they say. But even within Islam Ani, which still keeps you inside of Islam, there are Ani, 72 wrong ways and only one right way. And this right way has a few different names for it. The names themselves are not as important as the description. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ didn't name them with a title or a label. And you need to understand why the Prophet ﷺ didn't label them with a label. There's nothing wrong with labeling them with a label, calling them Al-Firqatul Najiyah or Ta'ifat Al-Mansura or Ahlul Sunnah or whatever you want to call them. But why did the Prophet ﷺ not give them a label? Some of the Sahaba gave them a label. Some of the Sahaba said Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. But why did the Prophet ﷺ not give them a label? Because the label is less important than the haqiqah. And we have a principle which we'll talk about in probably Al-Qawa'id Al-Faqhiyah, which is Al-Asma'u la tughayyiru al-haqaiq. Names don't change the reality of things. If you take riba and you take the alif in riba and erase it and write ha, what do you get? Ribah, prophet. But if it's still riba, it's riba. doesn't matter if you call it ribah. You might go into a bank and they say, we take 3.5% rib from you. We take 3.5% profit. See, Habibi doesn't matter if you write it with a ha or you write it with an alif. Rib or riba. If you're taking for me an extra amount of money in return for a delay in payment, then this is riba, whether you call it riba or you call it rib or you call it fa'ida or you call it anything else. Names don't change the reality of things. So a person may say, I am from Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, Al Firqatul Najiyah, Wa Ta'ifatul Mansura. I'm from all of these, you know, saved groups, saved sect, Ahlul Sunnah. But unless their description of belief and action matches that of Ahlul Sunnah, they are not from Ahlul Sunnah, even if they have every label and carry every card. Even if they come to you and say, I'm a, you know, card carrying member of. Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah. The reality is that unless they have that description within them, that belief within them, they are not from Ahlul Sunnah even if they use that name. There is nothing wrong, and we say it again, there is nothing wrong with using a label to describe this group. The scholars of the past unanimously agreed upon this. And none of them criticized the use of a label to describe this group. I need to say that they are, for example, Ahlul Hadith, or Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, or Ahlul Sunnah. 
The ijma' of the ummah is upon this The permissibility of using a label to describe this group However, the label in itself is not what matters For example, one of you may say I am from Ahlul Hadith And one of you may say I am from Ahlul Sunnah And one of you may say Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah And one of you may say Ahlul Athar And one of you may say from those people who follow the Salaf And one of you may say And none of this matters because all of them are the same all of them are the same. All of them refer to one single belief. One single set of beliefs. And the scholars themselves did not use the same label. Some of them said Ahlul Athar, Ahlul Sunnah, Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, Firqatul Najiyah, Ta'ifatul Mansura. I mean, different labels. And when you go through the book, the, the proof that Ahlul Hadith are the saved sect and the victorious group, you will see many, many different scholars quoting different uh, narrations. Al-Imam Malik was asked, who are they? And he had one opinion. But all of them are the same. They, come with the, they are just names for the same thing. So the label is less important than the reality. Because in Islam, labels don't change the ruling of things, but the reality changes the ruling of things. And what we have unanimous agreement on is that Al-Firqatul Najia, they are those people who follow the belief of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and his companions. As the Prophet Sallallahu said in some ahadith, Ma ana alayhi ashabi. What I and my companions follow, are following today. So the one whose belief is consistent and in agreement with the belief of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and his companions, this person is from Al-Firqatul Najiyah and Al-Ta'ifatul Mansurah and Ahlul Sunnati Wal Jama'ah and any labels change in different places and different times so for example maybe in the beginning it was said Ahlul Sunnah Ahlul Sunnati Wal Jama'ah and some of the Sahaba and some of the early Tabi'een Ahlul Sunnah Wal Jama'ah what happened after that? Every deviant group named themselves Ahlul Sunnah Wal Jama'ah. Of course, because no deviant group is going to say, hang up a flag outside the door which says, Mubtadi'een, Ahlul Bid'ah. Yani we are from the people of innovation. Nobody is going to hang that outside. Nobody is going to say, we are from the people of Jahannam. Please join our group. So as soon as they heard the scholars using the word Ahlul Sunnah Wal Jama'ah, what happened? They took the word Ahlul Sunnah Wal Jama'ah. And Ahlul Sunnah Wal Jama'ah is intended to refer to what? As the Sheikh said, they are Ahlul Sunnah Wal Jama'ah. It refers to two things the Sunnah and the Jama'ah. The Sunnah, because the distinguishing factor of the saved sect and the victorious group is that this saved sect and this victorious group will follow the Sunnah of the Prophet. And that's why they deserve the name Ahlul Sunnah. And they will follow the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ instead of following the opinions of yani, Fulan and Fulan. And that's why they're called Ahlul Hadith. Or they will follow the Athar, the narrations of the early generations. And that's why they're called Ahlul Athar or Ahlul Athar. But that, why was this name given early on? Ahlul Sunnah to oppose those people who rejected the sunnah 
from the Shia and those who are with them, the Khawarij to a certain extent, who rejected the Sunnah. So they said we are Ahl Sunnah yani in opposition to the Shia who rejected the Sunnah. And those other groups, not only the Shia, the Shia and the Khawarij rejected a large amount of the Sunnah as well. Well, Jama'ah, the Jama'ah is the united body of the Muslims. Meaning that they did not stray off into different sects. They stuck with the original Islam, the true Islam, the original Islam that came from the Prophet ﷺ. This is the Jama'ah. But be careful about the word Jama'ah. The Jama'ah is not the majority. This is the Jumhur. The Jama'ah is not the word for majority. As some of the Sahaba said, the Jama'ah is whoever is upon the truth, even if it is only one person. The Jama'ah is whoever is upon the truth, even if it is only one person. It's not the case that the Jama'ah is the majority. The Jama'ah has two meanings that, is imp that are important. Number one is sticking to the original mainstream Islam that was passed down by the Prophet ﷺ and his companions. The second meaning of the Jama'ah is also in opposition to the Khawarij because the Khawarij are known for breaking off from the Jama'ah and rebelling against the main body of the Muslims. And the Khawarij are well known for their rebellion. As we said, as we studied them, we said they're well known in module one, we studied that they're well known for their rebellion, breaking off from the main body of the Muslims who are united behind their Waliul Amr, the person who is in, in charge of them. The Khawarij were known for rebelling and he breaking off from that group and rebelling. And so the companions, when they said Ahlus Sunnah wal Jama'ah, they removed with this title everyone who was present in their time who from the deviant you know, sects and deviant groups. They got away from, they said, in effectively, Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, we are not Shi'i, we are not Khawarij, we are not Qadariyya, we are not from the Qadariyya, because we follow the Sunnah and we stick to the main body of the Muslims. Meaning, what the Prophet ﷺ was upon and his companions were upon, as the Prophet ﷺ said, ma What me and my companions are upon today. In different places, that name may change. Because, for example, it may be a place where the name Ahlus Sunnah has been taken by some of the deviant uh, groups and they've taken the name Ahlus Sunnah and that has become famous for them in that country. For example, in some places in, for example, in Pakistan, for example, the term Sunni is often used for the people who worship the graves. The people who go and worship the graves will say, we are the, we are the Sunnis, we are Ahlus Sunnah. They have taken that name and that name became famous. So when they took that name and that name became famous, the people who are really Ahlul Sunnah, they may choose a different name for themselves to clarify the difference between them and this group because of course you don't want to get, you don't want to mix up. You don't want to say, okay, I'm going to look for a masjid of Ahlul Sunnah because I want to be from the saved sect and the victorious group. And then you turn up to a, you know, like a grave worshipping session because the group has changed their name in that particular country. So each label in different places, in different times. And there are some that are well known 
as we said, Ahlul Sunnah, Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, Ahlul Hadith, Ahlul Athar. These are ancient, yani old, old yani names that were used by among the very early generations. Uh, the use of the word Salaf, because the Salaf refers to the early generations. But again, not everybody who uses this word necessarily is deserving of it. Yani. So we understood that what matters is that we should, as Muslims, strive with every single part of us to be from the saved sect and the victorious group. As the Prophet ﷺ said, they will re always remain. There will always remain a group from my ummah. Upon the truth, manifest. They will not be harmed by those who oppose them until the hour comes when they are in the same situation. And there will always remain a group from this ummah upon the truth. A ta'ifa. The Prophet ﷺ in this time he used the word ta'ifa. There will always remain a ta'ifa, a group from my ummah clearly upon the truth. So you never have to fear that it will never be the case that the saved sect will die out and that it will just all be like from the deviant sects or the 72 groups that will be in Jahannam. No, there will always be a group of people upon the truth. And that group does not belong to one individual except for the Prophet And that's why you hear the scholars of the Sunnah, they will tell you openly that this group does not belong to a Shaykh. That's why it's not called Wahhabiyyah or Taymiyyah or Hanbaliyyah. It doesn't, it's not called Wahhabism or Taymism or Hanbalism or any other ism. And it's not named after a city. It's not named after a city or a, or a, or a place or a village. And it's not named after a, uh, an individual or a tribe. Because its only allegiance is to the Sunnah. To the Prophet and that's why in reality we are not followers of any Shaykh exclusively meaning that we follow the Shaykh and what he says is Haq and what he doesn't say is Batil it's not what we follow and this is misunderstood because some people will say like for example they will say you know we have our Shaykh and you have your Shaykh and you are a follower of the Shaykh and whatever the Shaykh says you take it. That's not the case. Not Ibn Taymiyyah, not anybody else. You follow the Sunnah of the Prophet And whatever you find in the books of Ibn Taymiyyah or in the books of Imam Ahmed or anybody else that agrees with that Sunnah, you take it. And whatever you find that disagrees with that Sunnah, you reject it. Because your allegiance, your wala is to Allah and His Messenger sallallahu and not to any shaykh and not to any individual. And unfortunately, some of the brothers upon the sunnah have misunderstood this in our time. And they have made their allegiance to their shaykh to the point that whatever their shaykh says is correct and whatever their shaykh doesn't say is wrong. And this is not Ahl sunnah And it's not Al-Firqatul Najiyah. And it's not Al-Ta'ifatul Mansura. Because the early generations are unanimous upon the fact that this group and this sect do not follow any particular sheikh or any particular individual except for the Prophet 
And if we were to follow a shaykh after the Prophet ﷺ, we would have followed Abu Bakr. And Umar and Uthman and Ali radiallahu anhum. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ commanded you to follow him and to follow the guidance of the Khulafa al-Rashidin. But we don't put our allegiance to any one individual apart from the Prophet ﷺ. And so people should be careful of that. As much as we love our shuyukh and we don't take anything away from them, we love them, we love reading their books, we benefit from them, alhamdulillah. But as for saying that somebody is ma'asum from making a mistake, protected from making a mistake, the only one protected from making a mistake is the Prophet ﷺ. As Imam Malik said, Everyone has their statements accepted and rejected. Everyone. Take the most knowledgeable of the Imams. Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, Al-Imam Malik, Al-Imam Shafi'i, Al-Imam Ahmed. Every single one of them has things that we take from them and things that we don't take from them, rahimahumullah. Except for the Prophet ﷺ. He is the one that we take from him universally. And we don't ask questions. We don't say we take this and we don't take this. We take from it, absolutely. And they are Ahl-Sunnah, as the Shaykh said, they are Ahl-Sunnah. This is the belief of Ahl-Sunnah. Well, jama'ah. And then he summarizes it. And he says, the i'tiqad of this group, the belief of this group, it is, al-imanu billah wa malaikatihi wa kutubihi wa rusulih wal ba'thi ba'd al-mawt wal-imanu bil-qadari khayrihi wa sharrih. The shaykh, he says that this belief, the belief of Ahl-Sunnah, it can be summarized in saying that it is the belief in Allah and His angels and His scripture and His messengers and the resurrection after death, and the belief in the divine decree, the good of it and the bad. Where did the Shaykh take this definition of aqidah from, or i'tiqad? He took it from the hadith of Jibreel, Sahih Muslim, that Jibreel came to the Prophet wasallam, and one of the things he said, O Muhammad, tell me what is Iman? The Prophet ﷺ said, أَن تُؤْمِنَ بِاللَّهِ وَمَلَائِكَتِهِ وَكُتُبِهِ وَرُسُلِهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَالْقَدَرِ خَيْرِهِ وَشَرِّهِ قَالَ صدقت. It's to believe in Allah and His angels, His scripture and His messengers and the resurrection after death and to believe in the divine decree, the good of it, and the bad. This is a summary of the aqidah of Ahl-Sunnah. Now, people ask a lot of times, if this is the summary, is it true that, therefore we can say, that our aqidah is iman in Allah and his angels and his messengers and, and so on. There are masail in aqidah, there are issues in aqidah which fall somewhat outside of this, these uh, six pillars. However, generally, there are two ways of looking at it. Either you look at this as a summary and say that in summary, this covers all of the issues of aqidah in summary. 
Or you also can say that these supplementary issues can also be fit within this category. For example, let's take a supplementary issue. Like, in other words, an issue of Aqidah which doesn't fall under the pillars of Iman. Our belief in the companions. Their status. That we love them all, that we honor them all. That we don't speak bad about what happened between them. That we don't curse them or revile them. This is a fundamental part of our Aqidah. And it falls generally outside of Al-Iman Billahi wa Malaikatihi wa Kutubihi wa Rusulihi wa Yawm Al-Akhir wal Qadri Khayrihi wa Sharrihi. There are two ways of looking at that. One, you can say that these six pillars of Iman cover the vast majority of issues of Aqidah. And even if there are some outside, that doesn't hurt because generally the vast majority from there. And the other way of looking at it is that even these other issues can still be fit within the area of Iman. So belief, uh, our belief about the companions comes under our belief in the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And what he said and what he brought. When he said, La tasubbu ashabi, do not revile my companions. So you can see this, and it can, you can fit it in, or you can just say that the six pillars of Iman are a general summary of uh, our belief, even if there are areas of belief that come uh, outside of those. Six pillars of Iman. Primarily in this uh, treatise, mostly we're going to be dealing with Al Imanu Billah, belief in Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. So we will leave this uh, to continue in the text. But just briefly to touch upon Iman in the other areas is something that we hopefully want to cover, inshallah, and to cover as much as we can in different modules. Something about the angels, something about the scripture, but just generally so we understand, right? just in a very brief way. Uh, Iman in Allah is going to be explained in the following uh, sentence. Iman in the angels covers many, many things. Again, it covers belief in what the angels are and belief in what the angels are not and actions related to that belief. So belief in what the angels are, that the angels are a creation from the creation of Allah. That they were created from light. That they do not have free will. They only do what Allah commanded them to do. They do not disobey Allah in what He commands them to do and they do as they are commanded. It contains belief in the names of the angels that we know and their roles. So we know of Jibril or Jibrail. And we know of Mikal or Mikail. And know at least any fairly reliably Israfil. Other than that, we don't know other names of the, or me, we don't know to the best of my knowledge, I can't think of any other names of the angels that are authentically reported. This name Azrael is not authentically 
reported as the name of the like some of them said the name of the angel of death some of the scholars said munkar and nakir are names of the angels but these are closer to being descriptions of the angels rather than names and rather than the name of the angel be munkar and nakir it's closer that munkar and nakir are descriptions of the angels of those two angels that asked the question in the grave so when we look at this we know that the angels have we also affirm that they we know certain jobs and certain titles for them so we know malakul maut the angel of death say the angel of death causes you to die who has been entrusted with this responsibility we know the angels that will ask the question in the graves munkar and nakir and of course malik of course we know as a name that's another one we know the name of malik the the guardian of the of the hellfire and that was the one that i missed out malik the guardian guardian of the hellfire and we know various jobs so we know certain roles and responsibilities we know that jibril has been given the responsibility of al-wahi of revelation delivering the revelation of allah to the messengers we know the angel that has been given the job of blowing the horn and fairly reliably we, we know that his name is Sarafil and that he's been given the job of blowing the the horn to signal first of all twice any one time for everything on the earth to perish and the second time for the people who have died to be raised from their graves what do we know that the angels aren't because we know what the angels are we also know what the angels aren't we know that the angels aren't the daughters of Allah as some of the people of Quraysh used to believe that the angels were the daughters of Allah we know that the angels aren't deserving of worship we know that the angels do not have a rububiyyah they do not have lordship we know that the angels do not disobey Allah and there is no fallen angel as some of the Christians said that Iblis was a fallen angel some people might say but didn't Allah Azza wa Jal say وَإِذْ قُلْنَا لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ اسْجُدُوا لِآدَمَ فَسَجَدُوا إِلَّا إِبْلِيسِ Didn't Allah Azza wa Jal say when we said to the angels to prostrate to Adam and they prostrated except Iblis? There are two answers to this. First of all, when we use the word illa in Arabic, we call it al-istithna. Uh, when we use this illa to mean accept it's not necessary that this exception should be from the same group as an example it's no there is no problem in me saying in Arabic all the students left except the teacher there's no issue with this in English this might be wrong I'm not that good at English grammar to know whether it's wrong or not but it's probably wrong in English to say 
all of the students left except the teacher. But in Arabic, it's completely valid to say all of the students left except the teacher, all of the fans left the stadium except the players. This is completely normal Arabic. Secondly, Allah Azza wa Jal specifically said that Iblis was from the jinn. كَانَ مِنَ الْجِنِّ فَفَسَقَ عَنْ أَمْرِ رَبِّهِ in Surah Al-Kahf. He was from the jinn and he disobeyed the command of his Lord. So we know that the angels were not fallen angels. And what else do we know? Uh, we said that we know what the angels are and... Uh, and what the angels aren't. We also know, coming on to the issue of the scripture, the scripture covers, Al-Kutub, covers all of the revealed scripture that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down to his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And just while I'm saying that, I'll just apologize to the sisters in the villa that we're having some uh, network connection issues today it keeps dropping off and coming back on so they keep missing bits i don't think they've missed too much it was on for most of the class but it's just dropping it's just going up and down a little bit the guys are working on it so belief in the kutub that's belief in the in the scripture belief in all of the the revealed scripture that which we know of and that which we don't because we know of some of the revealed scripture we know of some of the names for example we know of the torah and we know of the Injil and the Quran and the Zabur, the Psalms of, uh, of, uh, of Dawood. And we know of Suhufi Ibrahim wa Musa, according to the scholars who say that Suhufi Musa is not the Torah. The scripture that was given to Ibrahim and the scripture that was given to Musa. The scholars differ over Suhufi Musa. Our Suhuf Musa, is it different from the Torah or is it another name for the Torah? In any case, we know of certain scripture. And of course, our belief in the early scripture differs from our belief in the, in the scripture that we have with us today, the Quran and the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. With regard to the scripture, the early scripture, we believe in it like they say, ijmalan, yani in a general sense. However, we're not able to believe in specific uh, ayat, specific parts, because we do not have a ra an accurate record of that early scripture. Rather, whatever is in the Quran that agrees with the early scripture that is still present with us, we believe in it, and whatever the Quran denies that is present in what is said to be the early scripture today, we disbelieve in it. And whatever is in the scripture of today, for example, the Bible or whatever it may be, which is neither spoken about, neither affirmed nor denied by the Qur'an, then we neither affirm nor deny it. We say Allahu A'lam, Allah knows best. Because we know that this Bible originally came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It was from the revealed speech of Allah And one of the, the proofs you have that the Bible today is not the Bible, is that the Bible that was given, the Torah and the Injil that were given to Musa and Isa السلام, was from Kalamullah from the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as for the Bible that exists today, it's very clear that this is written from the speech of men in the vast majority of 
of cases. So in terms of the early scripture, we believe in it in a general sense and we believe in a specific sense in whatever is affirmed by the, by the Qur'an or by our scripture, the Qur'an and the Sunnah. As for the Qur'an and its companion, the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and specifically when we talk about Al-Qutub, we generally talk about the Qur'an and the Sunnah, generally we put it under the belief in the Rusul. But our belief in the Qur'an We've covered a lot of points on that in the topic of Ulum al-Qur'an. And you see, what I want you guys to do now is to start to build links. You know, you start to think, okay, we talked about that in this place. We talked about that here. We've already talked about the Qur'an. That the Qur'an is the speech of Allah uncreated. From it, it came and to him, from him it came and to him it will return. And we've spoken about that in some detail. So try to link the topics together. What I want you guys to understand is that Islam, studying Islam in this way, in these different topics, aqidah and fiqh and, you know, tafsir and ulum al-Qur'an and whatever, they are not, they are separate from one, in one way and, and together in one way. They are separate in the sense that each one of them is a separate subject with a separate topic. But they're all part of studying Islam and so there are strong links between each one. Al-Iman bil-Kutub, particularly Iman in the Qur'an, you could find information about it in books on Ulum al-Qur'an and books of Aqeedah. And maybe also books, and generally in Ulum al-Qur'an like Tafsir. So you could find the same information or similar information in different books. But definitely in the Aqeedah books, it's going to be more on the point of this is what you have to believe about the Qur'an and this is what you shouldn't believe about the Qur'an. And then with regard to sort of a book of Ulum al-Qur'an, it's going to be more general than that. But we already covered in Ulum al-Qur'an one of the major mabahith, one of the major topics in Ulum al-Qur'an is that topic of the Qur'an being the speech of Allah, uncreated, that from, it it from him it came and to him it will return. And we spoke about that and its place. And belief in the Rusul, again, generally and specifically. The general belief in the Rusul is the belief in all of the messengers that, that, that uh, were sent by Allah Azza wa Jal. Many or the majority of which we do not know. We know approximately 25 in the Qur'an. Give or take, because there are some disagreements over the number. But around about 25 we know in the Qur'an. 18 of those, approximately, are also mentioned in the Christian and Jewish scripture. Or between, yani in the Bible. But there are many, many, many more, vast majority more, which we do not know of. We do not know their names, we do not know the scriptures they were given. So we believe in them in a general sense and we believe in all of the prophets. And we don't make any distinction between them in the sense that we do not say we disbelieve in one and believe in the others. As for the prophets that we know of specifically, then we have a belief again, what they were and what they weren't. That they were human beings. They were not angels, as Allah told us in the Quran. 
They were not angels, they were human beings. Sent down to deliver a message and to be an example to follow. We know that they did not commit major sins. We know that they did not do anything that would take away from their responsibility. We know that they fulfilled the amana that was given to them. We know that they did not tell anyone to worship them besides Allah. And so on. And again, we can come into this in more detail later on. Well, ba'thi ba'd al mawt and resurrection after death. Resurrection after death covers everything that will happen, really, from the moment of death until the believers enter paradise and live therein forever and the disbelievers enter Jahannam and live therein forever. That whole time, including what happens in the grave and what happens in the questioning and what happens on Yawm Al-Qiyamah is all called Al-Imanu bil Al-Akhir Belief in the last day. And this was one of the major messages that were delivered to Quraysh. Because a number of Quraysh rejected. Again, Quraysh were a, a big mixed bag. And you should, you should understand this. But a lot of people also confuse this a little bit. They say, hold on, you know, like the Quran sometimes t talks about Quraysh. They believe in this and sometimes they believe in that. The reality is that Quraysh or the people that the Quran is addressing were of a mixed a mixed variety. Some of them believe this, some of them believe that, some of them did this, some of them did that. There are generalizations you can make that generally they all believed in Allah as their Lord and Creator. But there are, there are also differences. But a lot of them rejected the belief in the last day. And yet they believed in Allah in a general sense. Because they said, when we turn into dust and, and bones will Allah any will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring us into a new creation will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring us back again uh, the sheikh he mentions iman twice and he mentions iman at the beginning and then he mentions the word iman before qadr and that is according to the hadith of Jibreel because in the hadith of Jibreel, and tu'mina billahi wa malaikatihi wa kutubihi wa rusulihi wa yawm al-akhir wa in tu'mina bil-qadari khayrihi wa sharrih. So it has, the word iman was mentioned twice. And that's because the hadith of Jibreel, which is mentioned in Sahih Muslim, the entire hadith was mentioned in order to refute the qadariyah. And when you read the hadith, this is clear. That some people came from al-Basra. And this is after Ma'bad al-Juhani had begun to speak about Qadr, to tell the people there is no Qadr in, in Basra. So they came to Mecca on Hajj or Umrah, looking for one of the companions to ask them about this belief that had appeared. So they found Abdullah ibn Umar, radiallahu anhumah. And they said, there has appeared among us a people who read the Quran and they do and they mention several any good deeds that they do they say that there is no Qadr 
And they're from the Qadariya. And Abdullah ibn Umar refuted them by saying that if you see them, then tell them that I have nothing to do with them and they have nothing to do with me. And by Allah, if one of them gave the mountain of Uhud in gold, it would not be accepted from him until he believes in Qadr. And then the evidence that he gave was the hadith of Jibreel. And the entire of the hadith of Jibreel was mentioned from beginning to end as a refutation of the Qadariyyah. So that is why perhaps there is this emphasis again. That you believe in Qadr. And there is this emphasis because of the fact that this group will appear that does not believe in the decree of Allah. And the good of it and the bad. And the good of it and the bad does not. And we understand that in the right way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees everything. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is khaliqu kulli shay, the creator of every single thing. We say, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقْ مِنْ شَرِّ مَا خَلَقٍ We seek refuge from the evil which he created. But Allah does not create evil for evil's sake. And he does not decree evil for evil's sake. And that is the meaning of وَالشَّرُّ لَيْسَ إِلَيْكَ Evil is not attributed to you. Because Allah is the creator of everything and the one who decrees everything. And nothing happens except by his decree, good or bad. However, Allah does not decree evil for evil's sake. If Allah decrees something evil, then he decrees it for a wisdom and a benefit that he knows. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the shaykh, he goes on to say, and this is just we want to lead into this now because it's, uh, we can... This is the main topic of the book. وَمِنَ الْإِيمَانِ بِاللَّهِ الْإِيمَانُ بِمَا وَصَفَ بِهِ نَفْسَهِ فِي كِتَابِهِ وَبِمَا وَصَفَهُ بِهِ رَسُولُهُ مُحَمَّدٍ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ مِنْ غَيْرِ تَحْرِيفٍ وَلَا تَعْطِيلٍ وَمِنْ غَيْرِ تَكْيِيفٍ وَلَا تَمْثِيلٍ بَلْ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِأَنَّ اللَّهَ سُبْحَانَ لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٌ وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرُ This is where the shaykh gets on to the primary topic of the, of the book. From al-imanu billah, from a part of believing in Allah, is to believe what Allah described himself with in his book. Allah described himself in his book with various things. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Maliki Yawmiddin. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Warabbuka al-Ghafuru dhu'l-Rahma, your Lord is most forgiving, possessor of great mercy. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala described himself with many, many things in the Qur'an. And Allah azza wa jal's description of himself in the Qur'an is one of the major purposes behind our creation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Allahu alladhi khalaqa sab'a samawat wa min al-ardi mithlahun yatanazzalu al-amru baynahunna lita'lamu anna Allah ala kulli shay'in qadir wa anna Allah qad ahata bi kulli shay'in ilma. The end of Surah Al-Talaq. Allah says, Allah, who created the seven heavens and from the earths, seven earths like them, 
His command descends between them so that you may know that Allah is able to do all things and that Allah has encompassed everything with His knowledge. And the creation of the heavens and the earth was established so that you may know that Allah is described with this description. So the description of Allah in the Quran is one of the major purposes any one of the two major purposes we are told behind creation we are told the heavens and the earth were created for you to know Allah and we are told in surah al-dhariyat wa ma khalaqtu al-jinna wal insa illa li'abudun you only created the jinn and the men to worship me and those two are not contradictory those two go together perfectly so we have been created لِنَعْلَمْ وَلِنَعْبُدَ اللَّهِ We have been created to know Allah and we have been created to worship Allah based on that knowledge. It is the knowledge of what Allah described Himself with that leads you to worship Him. And you worship Him based upon the knowledge that you have of what He described Himself with in His book. And what his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam described him with because Allah azza wa jal said about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he doesn't speak from his own desires it is only a revelation which is revealed therefore whatever Allah azza wa jal described himself with in his book, one of the major parts of our Iman, Al-Imanu Billah, believing in Allah, is believing in what Allah described himself with in the Qur'an and what the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam described himself with in the Sunnah, or described Allah with in the Sunnah. What Allah described himself with in the Qur'an and what the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam described Allah with in the Sunnah. And then the Shaykh mentions four things that we are commanded to keep away from. And we're going to cover them in more detail in the next lesson, but just briefly we'll just cover so we get ready for the, for the next lesson in more detail. Four things that we have been commanded to keep away from. At-tahrif, wa-ta'atil, wa-takyif, wal-tamthil. Tahrif is to change the meaning of what Allah described Himself with. Away from the meaning which Allah Azza wa Jal intended. This is Tahrif. You can say it is to, and in tahrif is to change the meaning of something. To take the meaning away from its proper meaning. And we're going to come to this later on what exactly this is. The second one, at-ta'atil. To deny, ta'atil is, is some kind of denial or rejection. The third one, at-takyif, to ask how, 
to ask Kayfa, how does Allah do this? Ana tamthil. And the word tamthil is better than the word uh, tashbih. Some of the scholars use the word tashbih. But the word tamthil is better. Uh, we'll come to that also in a, uh, later on. But tamthil is to compare Allah to his creation. So there are four things we avoid when it comes to the names of Allah and his attributes. Number one, changing the meaning from its proper meaning. Number two, denying the name or the attribute in some way. Number three, asking how. And number four, comparing Allah to his creation. Then the Shaykh, he gave the evidence for this. He said, rather they believe that Allah is لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٌ وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرُ There is nothing like him and he is السَّمِيعُ The all-hearing, al-basir, the all-seeing. Since Surah Al-Shura, ayah number 11. And this ayah is the most comprehensive ayah in explaining the principles that relate to Allah's names and attributes. And this ayah is the most comprehensive one. There is nothing like him. And yet he is al-sami' al-basir. And this ayah negates all four of these issues. And this ayah rejects all four of these issues. So how does it reject at-tahrif? Changing the meaning. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرُ He is the all-hearing, the all-seeing. And in Arabic, and Allah Azza wa Jal told us, this Quran is بِلِسَانِ عَرَبِيٍّ مُبِينٍ In a clear Arabic tongue. In Arabic, you do not say Samir except for someone who hears. And you cannot say Basir except for someone who sees. Where is the evidence against At-Ta'atil? Likewise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرُ He is the all-hearing, the all-seeing. Emphasizing that you cannot deny that Allah is the all-hearing or the all-seeing. As for At-Takyif, Allah said, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ There is nothing like Him. And you can only know how something is by one of three means. Either you see it, or either you compare it to something, or either you have a reliable piece of information or a reliable report about it. We have not seen Allah, we will not see Allah until we die. Allah said, Laysa kamithlihi shay, there is nothing like him. Therefore we cannot compare Allah to something else. We cannot say, you see how the sun rises in the sky? We cannot compare Allah to the sun rising in the sky. There is nothing we can compare Allah to, so therefore we cannot ask how, because Allah has not told us how in the Quran, and therefore if we can't compare him and he hasn't told us and we haven't seen him, then there is no means for us to ask how. And a tamthil, that there being any compa comparison between Allah and his creation, Allah said, Laysa There is no mithil, there is no similarity or no comparison 
There's no way you can compare between Allah and His creation. So this ayah, in a general sense, is a refutation or a response to or a, 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 a set of principles which reject all of these four errors with regard to the names of Allah So the most important thing that we've learned in this issue of Iman Billah, and we're going to stop here, is that believing in Allah means to believe in what Allah described Himself with and what the Messenger وسلم, described Him with. That's a basic answer, full stop. That's what it means to believe in Allah. To believe in what Allah described Himself with and what the Prophet وسلم, described Allah with. But in doing so, we must avoid four things which people have fallen into over the, over the ages, over the times. Changing the meaning away from the meaning which Allah gave, denying or rejecting, asking how and comparing Allah to His creation and the evidence for these in summary and there are detailed evidences which will come but in summary the basic evidence for this in summary is لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٌ وَهُوَ السَّمِعُ بَصِيرٌ There is nothing like him and he is the all seeing, the all, the all hearing, the all seeing. Last point that it's worth making here and it's a bit important to, to note regarding السَّمِعُ uh, الْبَصِيرٌ Why did Allah choose to use the names السَّمِعُ Al-Basir here in this ayah. Why not say Wahua Rahman al-Samad? Why As-Sami' al-Basir? One of the reasons, one of the benefits in this is that hearing and sight is something that human beings also possess. And it's as if it is answering a doubt which exists in some of a particularly among the mutakallimin, the people of ilm al-kalam when they say that how can you say that Allah does such and such when human beings also do such and such for example how can you say Allah has a hand when human beings also have hands and Allah said Laysa kamithlihi shayt there is nothing that is like him Allah is answering this by saying لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٌ وَهُوَ السَّمِعُ الْبَصِيرُ There is nothing like Him. But despite the fact there is nothing like Him, He is the all-hearing and the all-seeing. And human beings can hear and human beings can see. And Allah can hear and Allah can see. But there is no comparison. Why? Because Allah's hearing is not like our hearing and Allah's sight is not like our sight. So the fact that human beings can see does not negate the fact that Allah can see. And the fact that human beings can hear does not negate the fact that Allah can hear. And when you say human beings can see and Allah can see, you are not comparing Allah to His creation. And when you say that human beings can hear and Allah can hear, you are not comparing Allah to His creation. Because the hearing is not like that hearing and the sight is not like that sight. Our sight is limited and hearing is limited. And as for Allah, His sight and hearing is infinitely perfect subhanahu wa ta'ala we have some questions from the sister's side inshallah which I will try to answer as quickly as possible okay is it allowed 
to refer to some scholars who have issues in explaining, like who have errors, in explaining uh, certain things. So this is an example where the question is basically, are we allowed to refer to scholars or students of knowledge who have mistakes in their aqidah for certain limited purposes? It's always better not to do that if you can avoid it. If you're able to avoid doing that, you should avoid doing it. If you're able. However, sometimes you don't find an alternative. And in this case, you should seek the advice of a scholar or a student of knowledge as to whether it is safe for you to refer to their work. And we mentioned this in Ulum al-Quran regarding some of the scholars like Az-Zamakhshari and some of them. We already mentioned this in Ulum al-Quran that in general we prefer to stick to the scholars of the Sunnah. We don't want to go to scholars or students who have errors. However, if it is required sometimes then it should be done under the instruction of a scholar. Like you ask one of the shiuch and say, Sheikh, is it okay for me to read this particular paragraph or this particular page or this particular chapter of this book and the Sheikh is known for his mistakes in this area? Because I don't find anything else, maybe in the Arabic language or in grammar or in some point of balagha or something like that. And if the Sheikh says that it's safe for you to do so, because some of the books of the people who have errors, the book itself is okay. Like the Sheikh will say, look, this particular book is okay, but don't read this particular book, for example. So the first thing is we avoid doing it where we can. The second thing is if we have to do it, we seek the advice of the scholars and the shuyukh before we go into that so we don't put our religion at risk. Would you suggest a book of tafsir for explaining to children? I don't find one that comes to mind. Uh, I think probably the best thing is for you to take a simple book of tafsir like tafsir al-Sa'di or tafsir, a summary of tafsir ibn Kathir or one of the books we mentioned and you just simplify it for the children. Don't change the meaning but just simplify it and you make the language more simple. Is it okay for women to sing in front of men? As I heard a hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ allowed a slave girl to complete her oath of singing. We have to be careful about taking a hadith and misunderstanding it and then leading us to do something which is unanimously and rejected. Singing in general is not something that Muslims do. There may be some exceptions, yani, like some small girls singing at a wedding or something like that. In terms of the hadith that I remember, the hadith refers to al-jariyah, yani a little girl. Uh, and Allah knows best, there may be another hadith, but there is one referring to two little girls on the day of Eid. The Prophet ﷺ allowed them to, uh, to sing. But you also have to understand what they mean by singing. It's not like I mean, it's not like what people do today. So generally, I don't. I mean, I don't see. 
music is, is, is haram in Islam, we know that for sure. And singing is a kind of music. But some limited uh, amount of what comes under that topic may be allowed from small girls on the day of Eid or on a wedding or something like that, as long as it's not accompanied by instruments and as long as the words are not inappropriate. But this is from small girls, yani, little girls, not from grown women singing in front of men. Wallahi, if the scholars of Islam differed over whether the voice of a woman is aura, what do you think about a woman singing in front of a man? And the scholars of Islam, many, some of them held the opinion that the voice of the woman is aura, that she's not even allowed to have her voice heard. Then how about singing in front of men? And there's no doubt that this is ashad. This is worse. Uh, is it okay to mention the name Majid without adding Al? I presume that means to, add, to, to name someone Majid without Al. Allahu Alam. I don't recall. Can children do fasting and Hajj and Umrah on behalf of their living parents? Fasting? No. Uh, Hajj and Umrah can be done on behalf of a living person if they are unable to do Hajj and Umrah themselves and it's not believed that they will be able. Yani they're too sick to be able to do it and it's not expected they will recover. Otherwise, it should not be done on behalf of a living person unless that person, when that person passes away. As for fasting on behalf of someone, then this is not done unless the person made an oath to fast. And you don't make up fasting days for someone, the days they missed in Ramadan or whatever. But if they made an oath that, oh Allah, I will fast three days if you give me this. And in this case, this is a different situation. What about bid'ah hasana? For example, taraweeh was not done in the time of the Prophet There is no bid'ah hasana. The Prophet said, فَإِنَّ كُلَّ بِدْعَةٍ Every bid'ah is misguidance. He did not say كُلَّ بِدْعَةٍ ضَلَالَ إِلَّا مَا هُوَ حَسَنَةٍ he did not say all bid'ah is misguidance except the one that is good. He said all, mis all bid'ah is misguidance. He said, Keep away from everything new. He didn't say keep away from everything new except what is hasan. As for taraweeh, taraweeh was done by the Prophet and done by the companions and done by the Khulafa al-Rashidin. Therefore it's not bid'ah and it's not compulsory now and it was not compulsory then. Nobody holds that taraweeh is compulsory by ijma' of the ummah. Taraweeh is a sunnah and is not compulsory. And it's not compulsory in any madhab of the former dahib. It was not compulsory then and it's not compulsory now. This issue of bid'ah hasana really yani, is like, it's like a dying man, you know, like clinging to his last, you know, hope. The Prophet ﷺ says every bid'ah is misguidance. Someone says, no, no, but my bid'ah is not misguidance. The Prophet ﷺ said every bid'ah is misguidance. He said, keep away from bid'ah. Al-Imam Malik said, whoever thinks there is such a thing in Islam as bid'ah hasana has accused the Messenger of Allah ﷺ of betraying his messengership. As Imam Malik said, man za'ama anna fil islami bid'atan 
hasana. Whoever imagines there is such a thing in Islam as bid'ah hasana has accused the Messenger of Allah وسلم, as betraying the trust. Someone puts his hand up and says, what about Umar? Didn't Umar say, what an excellent bid'ah this is? Okay, first of all, how can you take this in comparison to that? The Prophet وسلم, said every bid'ah is misguidance. Secondly, what was Umar talking about? If Umar was talking about the taraweeh, then the taraweeh is not a bid'ah in the first place. Umar, Umar, when he saw the people gathered for taraweeh, he said, what an excellent bid'ah this is. But ya ikhwani, this is not a bid'ah in the first place. The Prophet ﷺ did it. The companions gathered behind the Prophet ﷺ for three days, three nights. So how can it be a bid'ah? The meaning of bid'ah here is linguistically, linguistically, and like as in something that has not been seen before. And it's something the Prophet ﷺ told us to do, but subhanAllah, like, you know, finally we have been able to do what the Prophet ﷺ told us to do. That's the meaning of bid'ah here. The meaning of bid'ah here is sunnah hasana, not bid'ah hasana. And also, it was done by the Khulafa al-Rashidin, al-Taraweeh. And the Prophet ﷺ said, stick to my sunnah and the sunnah of the Khulafa al-Rashidin. So in any way you look at it, there cannot be such a thing as bid'ah hasana. As for the celebration of the, of the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ, this is not hasana even if, it was, even if there was bid'ah hasana. The Prophet ﷺ didn't do it. Abu Bakr didn't do it. Umar didn't do it. Uthman didn't do it. Ali didn't do it. The companions from the first of them to the last of them to pass away, Anas ibn Malik, not one of them did it. Anhum. Not one of the tabi'in, not al-Hasan al-Basri, and not Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib, or al-Zuhri, None of them did it. The four Imams, none of them did it. Al-Imam Abu Hanifa didn't do it. Al-Imam Malik didn't do it. Al-Imam Al-Shafi'i didn't do it. Al-Imam Ahmad didn't do it. Do you know who did it? The first people to invent the Mawlid were the Fatimiyun, the Ismailiyah, the Batiniyah, those people who are not considered to be Muslim by anyone. From the, they're so extreme that traditionally the Rafidi Shia considered them to be kuffar. And the Rafida considered them to be kuffar. If the Rafida considered them to be kuffar, what do you need after that? They are the people who say there is no salah, there is no zakat, there is no hajj, there is no saum, there is no rules in Islam whatsoever. Who are now known as the Aga Khan and uh, this, this uh, similar type of belief. The Ismaili and the Batini and the Duruz and the Alawites, like the like Bashar al-Assad, disbelief, and if the Alawites, these are all from the Baltiniya. It was this group of people who started the Mawlid. So which Sunnah are we following? Yani? The Sunnah of the Baltiniya, the Fatimiyun, the most extreme of the extreme Shia. And by the way, they did not celebrate only the Mawlid of the Prophet ﷺ. They celebrated the Mawlid of the Prophet ﷺ and of Ali and of Fatima and of Al-Hasan and Al-Hussein and of their ruler at the time. They had more than one. I don't know if it was... They have names like Al-Hakim bi Amrillah and al something bi... And they have these strange names. One of their rulers, they followed, they, they celebrated and his birthday too. So if we want to do this so-called bid'ah hasana, then we should also celebrate the birthday of this Shi'i Fatimi Kafir who disbelieved in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. 
because that is where this came from. So it's not bid'ah hasana, even if there was any, if there was such a thing as bid'ah hasana, which there isn't, as Imam Malik said. Okay, this one is a little hard to see. The first question, the one that was asked on the pink paper, I think this is better for the person to email to me. It's quite a, a personal and quite a, a difficult question about the false oath on the Quran. If, this, if the sister who wrote this question uh, could email me, then I will give a, a more detailed answer. This is not, like, not so good to reply in class. The second question, uh, if you get a dream of going into Jannah, is it true? And not necessarily. I mean... Uh, their dreams, uh, as we've given a, a talk on dream interpretation, are more complicated than that. But if a person sees themselves going into Jannah, then this is a bushra. This is a glad tiding from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we hope that it will be true. But a person needs to uh, yani be careful. Because these are not way, these are not, it's not a guarantee from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, dreams also have other interpretations. Some dreams are interpreted by opposites. Like what you see can be the opposite. So you should be careful that you don't take this as a, a guarantee. Just quickly go through these questions by the brothers. We don't want to be too long. Um, let's have a look. And then there is a quick announcement. Okay. This one we'll cover, inshallah. This question uh, from the brother on this small piece of paper, we'll cover like as we go out, inshallah. Is it better to play, pray alone after the main jama'ah is over in a masjid or should we wait for someone to come and pray in congregation? If you can pray in congregation, it's better. Don't pray on your own unless you have nobody else to pray with. Because uh, when a man came late to the... Jama'ah, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and I think it was in Mina, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asked who will give this man sadaqah, yani who will pray with this man as a charity, and they combined the jama'ah into one. So it's better that you pray in a jama'ah if you can. What does assalamu alaykum mean? What does the al-kaf wal meem, the kaf and meem, kum at the end mean? As-salam, uh, as we said, means As-salama min kulli naqsin wa'ib It means to be saved from every kind of deficiency And every flaw and every fault I need to be protected and saved To be kept safe and protected Alaykum means upon you And you're making dua for as-salama to, to descend upon the person To be sent upon the person by Allah And al-kaf wal meem We use it for a group of people so you have two choices with the salam. You can use proper Arabic grammar and refer to each person with the proper pronoun by saying assalamu alayka for a man, assalamu alayki for a woman, assalamu alaykum for a group of men or a mixed group of men and women, and assalamu alaykunna for a group of women. Or you can just say assalamu alaykum. You can do either. The common way is just to say assalamu alaikum to everyone, one person or two person, two people or group of men or women, just to say assalamu alaikum as a general pronoun. But if you wish, you can also make it specific grammatically by saying assalamu alaikum 
عليك عليكم عليكن Why did the people change the previous scripture? Why did the people change the previous scripture? The previous scripture was changed for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, we know that it was entrusted to the people who it was given to. Allah Azza wa Jal has not entrusted the Quran to the Muslims. Allah Azza wa Jal said, We sent down the remembrance and we will protect it. So Allah Azza wa Jal has taken the responsibility of protecting the Quran for himself. The earlier books were given to their people to protect as a test and a trial. So one of their tests were you have to keep your own book safe. You have to keep your own book safe. And they failed in that test in the most part. Or many of them failed in that test. Also Allah tells us it was changed by people who wished to change the rulings of Allah to suit themselves. And this is mentioned in numerous places in the Quran. Allah said, وَمِنْهُمْ أُمِّيُّونَ That from them there are illiterate people. They only know لا يعلمون كتاب إلا أماني. They only know, يعني they don't understand the scripture. They don't know the scripture except just what they hope for, what they guess for. وَإِنْهُمْ إِلَّا يَظُنُّونَ And they just guess. فَوَيْلٌ لِلَّذِينَ يَكْتُبُونَ الْكِتَابَ بِأَيْدِيهِمْ ثُمَّ يَقُولُونَ هَذَا مِنْ عِنْدِ اللَّهِ So woe to the people who write the book with their own hands and say this is from Allah. لِيَشْتَرُوا بِهِ ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا So they can gain a small benefit, a small price. They sold their religion for a small price. Not necessarily money. Because لِيَشْتَرُوا بِهِ doesn't always mean money. It doesn't have to mean that they, they got money for it. Although it could be. But also just that they got a benefit. Yani they got some benefit, worldly benefit, out of lying about what was in the book. فَوَيْلٌ لَهُمْ مِمَّا كَتَبَتْ أَيْدِيهِمْ وَوَيْلٌ لَهُمْ مِمَّا يَكْسِبُونَ So woe to them for what their hands write and woe to them for what they earn. So some of them did it for their own desires. Some of them did it to fool people into thinking it was from the book. وَإِنَّ مِنْهُمْ لَفَرِيقًا يَلْوُونَ أَلْسِنَتَهُمْ بِالْكِتَابِ لِتَحْسَبُوهُ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ وَمَا هُوَ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ And from them are a group who and he twists their tongues with the book so that you think it's from the book and it's not from the book. And they say it's from Allah and it's not from Allah. And they say about Allah, a lie about Allah when they know. Some scholars hold the opinion that the slaughtered meat of a Muslim who does not pray is not halal. Whereas the slaughtered meat of the Jews and the Christians is halal. How do we reconcile between these two opinions? Uh, there is no issue in reconciling between these two opinions. Um, First of all, the meat of the person, whether the meat of the person who prays is halal or not, and the one who doesn't pray is halal or not, depends on whether you consider the one who doesn't pray to be kafir or not. And this is a well-known issue. I've spoken about it at length, so I'm not going to go into it. We've got less time, so I'm not going to go into it in too much detail. But uh, this is the issue. that if For those scholars who hold that the one who does not pray is kafir, then this person is an apostate. 
and the apostate, his food is not eaten. By consensus, you cannot eat the food of the apostate. And he's somebody who says, I'm a Muslim, and then says, I no longer want to be a Muslim anymore. Their food is, their meat is haram by consensus. And in all of the madahib, the food of the apostate, the, the slaughtered meat of the apostate is not accepted. As for the Jews and the Christians, even though they're in a state of disbelief, Allah Azza wa Jal, because of their nearness to Islam, and as a means of ease for the Ummah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made their meat halal. But as for the apostate from the Muslims, their meat is not halal. Then the issue remains, is the one who abandons the prayer an apostate or not? And this is a matter of disagreement among the scholars, and I think the stronger opinion is that yes, they are. The one who abandons the prayer is not a Muslim. And if this is the case, then the one who abandons the prayer, their, their meat is not, their slaughtered meat is not halal. And the meat of the Jews and the Christians is because Allah has allowed the meat of the Jews and the Christians, but Allah has not allowed the meat of the apostate. Can you recommend good primary and secondary schools with sound Islamic uh, co-education? And this is the one to email me maybe. If you email me, I will try to think about it, inshallah. It's not an easy thing to recommend. I, I, you see, if you watch my video on children's education, you'll see I don't recommend any schools. I recommend homeschooling. I don't like, I don't like schools, subhanAllah. So, uh, and it's maybe not the right person to ask the question to, and Allah uh, knows best. I think we'll get the questions on the way out, because we've already taken half an hour of your time. There's one very quick announcement to make uh, from uh, Kalima, inshallah. Sorry, I missed it, Abdullah, otherwise I would have given it to you.